Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 16. Started the life of Abram not too terribly long ago, a few months ago. Genesis chapter 12, one of the most important passages in all of the Bible. Um, that key covenantal moment where God calls to Abram, this pagan guy living in the Ur of the Chaldeans, calls him out of Ur and to the promised land. And Abram responds in faith, follows God's lead and goes. And we have this great beginning moment of the faith of Abram in Genesis 12. Of course, the second part of Genesis 12 isn't so glorious. Really the first notable trial that Abram undergoes, a famine strikes, and he acts very impetuously and goes immediately to Egypt for help. And even going there risks his whole family and the covenant, at least on a human level, his part of understanding is put off to the side, and he even risks his dear wife Sarai's life to save himself when he's in Egypt. A low point for Abram in his faith. God miraculously delivers them out of the hands of Pharaoh, and in fact, blesses them even greater than they were blessed before as they go back with more people, more stuff, more livestock back to the promised land. And so God renews his commitment to Abram, and Abram responds with several acts uh, of fruits of righteousness when he gives the, the choice land to Lot. He humbly uh, takes the lesser land, and he seems to realize at this moment that the promise of land, yes, there's going to be a temporal reality to that for the people of Israel as God grows that nation to bring from that nation a blessing to all the nations in the person of Christ. But Abram realizes what really drives him is not that. What drives him is the heavenly country, uh, the future eternity that is his in God's promises of Christ, ultimately. This is what starts to really motivate Abram to follow God, not what will happen immediately. He believes that, but he really counts on a future blessing of the heavenly kingdom that he'll be able to live in. That's the ultimate realization. Just as the author of Hebrews says, that's the vision that Abram had that kept him moving along. A great point in, God, in his faith. And then this faith that God is working in him produces this valor of going and rescuing with just 300 of his own men, rescues Lot from these four warlords from the north. We just have picture after picture of God working and renewing, and then Abram having troubles and difficulties because he's like us, he's frail and he's feeble. He's a believer, he trusts in God's promise, but he struggles, and then these high points come, and really no greater high point yet than Genesis 15, the chapter before our focus today. This is where God renews that covenant commitment he made in Genesis 12. This is when he does an actual ceremony to demonstrate the one-sided nature of the grace of God to Abram and to us, where he cuts apart the animals, has himself walked through it as Abram watches, because Abram can't keep it. Only God can keep his own covenant. This great act of God's grace, his undeserved favor shown to sinners who really deserve wrath, but because God bears it himself, bears all the brunt of the covenant himself, we can be sure of our salvation. What a high point in the Bible for all of us, for Abram personally and Sarai as well. Promised again that he will in fact have a son even in his old age. You can't get a higher point than that. That's like the, the top of the mountain. Then there's chapter 16. 
And we all relate with these ups and downs. These are true believers. Abram believed it was counted in him as righteousness. First Peter 3 says that Sarai was a godly woman. These are believers who trust in the work that God will do for their salvation. These aren't people who are falling away from God's grace and salvation. They're saved. They're his. But then we have this episode, this failure that occurs that serves as a, a gracious, a gracious warning to all of us. Here as I read now, Genesis 16. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Beer Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Please bow with me as I lead us in prayer. Father, we are in need of your Holy Spirit's aid in understanding your holy word. Lord, we believe this book we have in our hands is your inspired word. It's authoritative. It is sufficient. Lord, we believe, but help our unbelief. Help us to craft our lives according to what is laid out here, not according to the voice of the culture at large or whatever is conventional wisdom or whatever the accepted practices are of the day. Lord, we see the mess that that kind of thinking and behaving got Abram and Sarai and Hagar into. I pray, O Lord, that you would conform us to your holy word by the ministry of your Holy Spirit because of the finished work of Christ for us. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I remember when I became a believer and started uh, growing in my faith, and I met mature believers, people who had been Christian for some time, and they had memorized several verses, committed 
portions of the Bible to their memory. And besides John 3.16, I didn't know too many passages, at least by memory. And I kept hearing one passage from Proverbs mentioned over and over again, and I believe it to be very applicable to the episode we have before us. You might recall in Proverbs 3, 5 through 7, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not or lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. I heard that repeated over and over again and it made sense to me with all the competing messages we hear from the world, from people who even mean well telling you something, God tells us, don't lean on your understanding, lean on my understanding, God says. Acknowledge me in everything, what I have to say about all things, and I'll make your path straight. I could not help to think of the opposite of what this passage says and how true it is as well. When I lean on my own understanding, my paths become crooked. And that's an important underlying message that reverberates through every decision that's made in this passage before us. And all of us can relate with tangled webs that are weaved in our lives, complexities that grow. One expediency leads to all sorts of difficulty and challenge, complications. We all relate with this. Still, though this happens, we also recognize God is always there. He's always graciously dealing with us in patience. It doesn't mean that some of the problems we find ourselves in or these situations that develop doesn't mean that they'll all have an earthly resolve every time. Some things become so deep it's difficult. But as believers, we can recognize that the grace of God never vanishes. It shows itself. But it should stand as a warning to us, as much as it is in our power, and it's only by God's grace, that we could, in all our ways, acknowledge him so that he might direct our paths into straightness. Self-reliance, that's what you see at work here. Self-reliance from Sarai, Abram agrees, Hagar is brought in as a victim but then joins in with sin as well. Self-reliance leads to expedience, which often leads to sinful choices. It often leads to selfish acts that cause great harm and pain to others. Nevertheless, all of this being true, God's sovereign hand remains upon this whole episode. He's working out his plan of redemption that is not thwarted even despite all that we see happening on the part of the players in this story. God's promise, his ultimate promise, his ultimate covenant remains sure, even though the faith of his children here falters. It's another backdrop for him to display his great gracious redemption once again. Let's look at how self-reliance is at work here. It's a bit of a warning to us for sure. We'll see in verse 1-2, look there with me, and you'll see how this self-reliance that originates at least in this episode with Sarai, we can all appreciate uh, to some degree her frustration, the pain she felt into her mid-70s now, still no children of her own, yet she keeps hearing from Abram, keeps hearing God's promise of a child to come. But as she contemplates this, we note a distrust in God's word on her part. Verse 1, now Sarai, Abram's wife, his one flesh partner, had borne him no children. 
There's a pain that comes with that for sure. This great man, Abram, with a whole city-state under his care, so much in the balance for the future promised to him, yet she had borne him no children, verse 1. Verse 2, she had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. Now, you recall when Abram was in Egypt and he came out from Egypt, Pharaoh gave him um, money, livestock, and people, servants. No doubt, Hagar was part of who Sarai was with when she was really abandoned by her husband for a time. Could be very well that she was close with Hagar, and they came out of Egypt together. So she was from an Egyptian background. Now she's with Abram's covenantal household. She's part of the household, but came from outside of the covenant. Now she's within the household, Hagar. And there is Sarai contemplating the situation. She's not trusting in God's timing. Yes, God said what he said, but this has not happened yet. And I'm way past childbearing age, she thinks. Verse 2 again, Sarai now says to Abram, Behold, behold now. Listen, where we are now. Let's assess our situation. Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. You'll notice Moses, the writer here, doesn't ever interject to say this is a wrong interpretation on the part of of Sarai. She's right. God is sovereign. She acknowledges the sovereignty of God here. This isn't the first time we'll see this kind of, this kind of relationship, understanding God has his sovereign, mysterious purposes, and she really is a statement of faith. This is not an unbeliever. This is a, a woman of God recognizing that she has not yet had a child, and it's got to be from God's hand, his restraining hand. She knows she couldn't have a child at this point anyways without a, a miracle, Of course, that's God's design in all of this, to show beyond the shadow of a doubt it's him who's fulfilling the covenant. But she's a woman who's struggling with great pain, great anguish over what's going on. And so she's starting to distrust how God is caring for her at this moment, how he's going to carry out what he has said. Behold now, verse 2, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. There's almost an abandoned feeling here to God's promise and plan. There's a distrust that's come, and now she's starting to rely on her own wisdom or mechanisms of the day, conventions of the times that could work to perhaps bring about this child of promise for Abram so this promise of God can happen. It may be, she said, perhaps this is the way, this is maybe the way what God meant. His words seemed explicit enough, but maybe we're not getting this. Some years have gone by now. We've been in Canaan for almost 10 years now. A few years since that mountaintop of Genesis chapter 15 in the covenant ceremony. Maybe, look at the wording now, verse 2. It may be, maybe this is the way God meant for it to happen, it, that we can obtain children by her. You see this moment of weakness here where she distrusts God's plan, she starts looking outside of God's revealed will for an answer. Her self-reliance here leads to distrust, and then you see how this relates so closely with the wisdom of God as revealed in the Proverbs. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. But here she's leaning on her own understanding, her own interpretation of events, her own um, lens that she is seeing God's revealed will through and saying, perhaps he didn't mean it exactly like he said it right there. 
and as a result of leaning on her own understanding, the path starts to get crooked. Let's see where the self-reliance now brings in other players. Starting at verse 2 into verse 4, we see this self-reliance now leading to expedience, expedience, um, impulsive actions, reactionary accent, uh, actions that we think will fix the situation we're in. Um, it seems expedient. Let's do this now to get out of the situation. That almost always leads us, not every time, almost always, though, leads us to sinful choices. Sarah says to Abram in verse 2, Behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. Here is the, expedient, the plan for expediency. You can have a child through my servant since I cannot have one. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. A.W. Pink commenting on this passage. Empathizing a bit with Sarai, who's waited a long time now for this promise to be fulfilled, and she just does not see it happening. It now acts in expedience in her suggestion. Pink said, Waiting is just what the natural heart finds so hard to endure. Rather than wait, people prefer to take the management of their affairs into their own hands and use human expediencies to give effect to the divine promise. Now, what she suggests sounds so odd to us, just like the picture of the covenant ceremony is so odd and foreign to us. But in the times, the ancient Near East, what Sarai suggests was practiced the world over. In no less than a couple documents that are very explicit in the, the tablets of Nuzi and Hammurabi's famed code, in both of these instances, we have codified the option for someone who's barren to have a surrogate person appointed so that children could be born to that household. Uh, that is how it happened all around where they were, it was completely understandable. It was culturally acceptable. People would have said, that's fine, you can do that. You might call it this natural law that developed, that came from people and their issues that, they, that confronted them. They found ways out, and that's the natural development of things. The problem is that natural development comes from people who are fallen, they're sinful. So you can't count on that natural law, that development of that law. You need the law of nature to guide, and the one who gave the law of nature is God, and he said one man and one woman, no one should come in between that union. That's a one flesh union. Any convention that says otherwise and does violence to that will lead you to a crooked path. But Sarai is acting expediently because this is what was culturally acceptable. Certainly, this is a, a pause for us to remember. What the culture says is acceptable is leaning on our own understanding. It's developed over time and it's a consensus made by sinful people. So the believer has to constantly be checked with what we accept because the culture says it rather than accept it for the reason we should truly accept it by God's clear revelation. Kent Hughes said clearly Sarai's polygamous solution was conventional and proper in the eyes of everyone but God, whose will had been expressed at creation. Despite the cultural norms, the suggestion from Sarai was sinful, and Abram should have known as much. It was a suggestion that opposed God's design for marriage. It's important to mention here, 
God's designs and his standards were not meant to kill human joy. In fact, think of the beauty of his standards. He creates everything for a purpose, including you and I, in marriage, in relationships, our work, everything. So he has a design laid into all of it that we don't know naturally. So he gives it to us so we understand it by his spirit and presses it upon us. And we have to follow it the way he says, of course we can't perfectly. The grace of God is so great that he reaches us even in our failures. But we'll find our greatest joy when we follow his design for things. And that's what he's holding out to us. And here Sarai's ignoring or forgetting that and moving to the conventions of the day where the standard that God had would have saved them all from this great harm and difficulty and pain and anguish and misery that they're all about to experience. But the key factor here, no doubt, in verse 2, you can see where this could have been shepherded, where this could have been steered in a different direction. I don't doubt that Sarai had genuine intentions for the continuing of God's promise. But look at verse 2. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Derek Hidner, the great Old Testament scholar, said that he had slipped from faith to be guided by reason in the voice of Sarai, not the Lord. Abram had heard the voice of God. He'd heard it audibly. He'd been in a covenant ceremony with God, but now he was listening to Sarai as she spoke against the revealed will of God about marriage, about his promise keeping. He was complacent and he was passive at this moment when it called for his leadership. You know, commentators have noted the similarity between Sarai and Abram here and Eve and Adam in the garden. Eve was not satisfied with God's will. She took the forbidden fruit and gave it to Adam. Adam took and he ate. Sarai was not satisfied with God's will. She took Hagar and gave her to Abram. Abram listened to the voice of his wife and took her. So after verse 3 now, Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan. Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar and she conceived. Just as the moment after Adam and Eve ate the fruit and things changed, so also when Abram broke intimacy with his wife and had relations with Hagar, things changed for the worst. The culture doesn't give you that part. Things also changed for the worst for Hagar, who is completely victimized in all of this. Past around like a pawn. Self-reliance led to distrust of God's will. Self-reliance led Abram and Sarai to expedience and sinful actions that victimized Hagar. Self-reliance leads them to harm everyone involved in generations that follow. You know, it seems strange and sad, but understandable given who we all are as feeble sinners, even believers, that immediately after this remarkable scene of the covenant ceremony and Genesis 15, that now the first recorded instance after, even though it might have been a few years for sure, but now we have recorded Sarai and Abram falling into this sin. Make no mistake before we move on, self-reliance 
is miserable. It brings misery, not solutions, not peace, not joy. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He shall make your paths straight. Yet we see leaning on our own understanding makes our paths crooked. I want you to notice verses 4 down to verse 6. You'll see how this self-reliance that has been picking up momentum like a snowball getting bigger as it rolls down a snowy hill. Now we see the harm of oneself and others. Every person here affected by terrible violence and pain to their spirits, to their psyches, to themselves. Um, The great Presbyterian Genesis commentator Candlish said, the jealousies, the heartburnings, and mutual reproaches which we now find disturbing the peace of this pious family are such as might have been anticipated from the course so unhappily pursued. They're getting exactly what they should have expected to get from the path they were taking. Verse 4, And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, when Hagar realizes, I'm pregnant, and my mistress is not, who's been trying for all this time, but I, I must be blessed compared to her. And she looked with contempt on her mistress. She looked down on Sarai. God loves me more. I'm more blessed than you are. The first outcome of Hagar's illicit pregnancy was for her to look down on Sarai. Now the harm only begins to compound. The pain starts to grow and multiply, as it always does. And Sarai turns to Abram, verse 5. May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. Look at the pain we're in now, Abram. Look what you let happen. May the Lord judge between me and you. Sarai's hurt leads to Abram's discomfort. She's not altogether fair about this at all. But Abram failed in his leadership, in his shepherding of his wife, his protecting of his wife and his household. And now Sarai's pressing him for a decision. You didn't make one earlier, now make one now. Abram's caught in the middle. So Abram, like any solid husband, steps up and decides, here, let me offer some peaceful ideas. You know that's not what happens. Look at verse 6. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Don't bother me with this. This is your, you brought this on. This is your fault. You go fix it. The law allows for you to make her a servant again. It doesn't matter. Just don't bother me with this. I don't want this lack of peace. It's all your idea. That's a colossal failure in leadership. Abram makes a move that only compounds the pain and the hurt for everyone involved. She's your problem. Deal with it. Canlis, who I referred to earlier just a moment ago, he tried to be disinterested. He is now entangled in a net of his own making. He's no longer free. He's a slave of circumstances. God calls upon husbands to be leaders in their household. And by leaders, it doesn't mean lording it over. It means looking upon your wife and thinking, how can I lay my life down for her? How can I protect her from something that could harm her because she's more important than I am? 
Um, Just like Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, I should find ways to give myself for her. So if she's about to make a decision like this that's going to hurt her and everyone else, that's my my opportunity. That's what God's calling me. It may be difficult because I want happiness at the moment. I want to be a pleaser at the moment. But I'm not being a pleaser and I'm not being a lover and I'm not being any kind of guide or shepherd or pastor to her when I just let this unfold. And that's exactly what Abram did. It's interesting that I come to this passage today. Today it marks 29 years since I married a treasure of a woman. This is our anniversary. And I thought over the years, and this will be no surprise to you, but she has been a much greater help to me than I have been to her. Over and over. There's nobody I trust like I trust her who helps me at every turn who constantly thinks of me before herself. I can't even imagine where I would be without her input. I'm under no illusion. I've been here 25 years, and I know that's mostly because you like her. I get it. I totally get it. I trust her judgment completely. But even she could have moments where she is short-sighted or is not thinking beyond the moment for whatever reason. And if I am passive just to keep peace, I'm not loving her. I'm not helping us. I'm not doing my job. So husbands, we're called to make decisions, to lay ourselves down, to step up into gaps that we have to step up in. We need to get off the recliner, get off of our fantasy football, and listen to whatever it is that we need to work with in our households. Abram wants peace. He doesn't want a nagging wife. You go take care of this. Don't bother me with this. What a mess. And here's the thing. Self-reliance is miserable. Sinful discontentment and distrust from Sarai, a sinful solution from Sarai and Abram that victimizes Hagar, a false pride by Hagar and a sinful mistreatment of Sarah from her, a false solitary blame from Sarah towards Abram, a sinful neglect of leadership by Abram, harsh treatment towards Hagar and Sarai. Kent Hughes said the result was the first marital triangle in biblical history. Here we have the multiplication of rejection, anger, hurt, jealousy, and vicious cruelty. What might we expect from Abram's choice not to lead? Look at verse 6. Behold, your servant is your power. Do as you please. And then look what happens. So what does Sarai do with this leadership from Abram, from this lead from Abram? Then Sarai dealt harshly with her. What happens with Hagar? And she fled from her. She ran from her. She dropped, she, where's she going to go? She got taken from Egypt. Where's she going to go? She goes back to Egypt. She has nothing. She's completely a victim of Abraham and Sarai's relationship and what has happened here. Where does she go? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. But leaning on your own understanding, it leads to a mess you know, it's, in some of your memories, in the early 90s, there was this series. I don't know if it's so much true anymore, but in the 90s, there became this famous or this popular trend in daytime talk shows to have these crazy, shocking stories of human misery in relationships that was entertaining to people watching. Uh, the worst is the Jerry Springer show, if some can remember. Don't indicate you know, lest you be considered unsanctified. The Springer Show, the most ex- it was the most extreme of all these notorious shows. 
he would present shocking guests, stories, and conflicts between the people involved. And the episodes would culminate in some kind of a fistfight that people would cheer like they were watching a wrestling match. They even have bodyguards there ready to, because they just expect that at some point when all these tangled webs of relationships and abuse are put on display, that's going to lead to a fight. And people tuned in by the millions to watch this. And the reason that millions tune in to watch this is not because it's so unthinkable to them. It's just the extrapolation of what so many people experience in their dysfunction and the sin that guides us in our relationships so often. I think people related with it at some level. That's why they watched it. Maybe to say, at least we're not as bad as what's there. Nevertheless, all this wreckage that we see in the story that leads to this point, may we never forget that God's grace is always there. It never vanishes for the people of God. And even chooses to reach out in a special way to Hagar, who no one else seems to care for. It's a display for the ages that God cares about the plight of those who are put out like this, who are victimized like this. All of them are victims of each other. Just like all of us sin against other people have been sinned against. And we live in a, a world of dysfunction. We need the grace of God to give us any kind of healing in our relationships. His direction to steer us in a way that's according to his understanding and not our own. So that we would acknowledge him and he would make our paths straight. There's a beautiful climax to this difficult story starting in verse 7 when we see God's grace. Though assailed and ignored and even grieved to some degree, it does not vanish. Hagar is this pained victim, flees The Lord meets her, verse 7. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. She was going back to Egypt. Now, this is an interesting note. Do you remember the first audience who received Genesis? The Israelites, after they've come out of Egypt. And remember what they were saying to themselves oftentimes as they wandered in the wilderness? Boy, wouldn't it be better to go back to Egypt? But God wanted them to do something else. That may seem like the easy thing. That might be the acceptable thing, but that's not his call for them. So they're hearing Moses tell this story and write this story. It's been shared verbally and now inscripturated. So they're needing this encouragement about following God. And now the angel of the Lord comes to Hagar as she's going back to Egypt it says, don't go back to Egypt. Go back. There's a place for you. There's a part for you to play. Look at verse 8. He said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The revealed will of God comes from the angel of the Lord. Who's the angel of the Lord? It's interesting. This is the first time in the Bible that we read the word angel. And this is not an angel, it's the angel of the Lord. And we know by what Hagar says that this is the Lord himself speaking. Some people even make the case that this could be the pre-incarnate Christ speaking to Hagar. I don't know if we could say that with that kind of confidence that I've read from some people who are that confident, but it's clearly God himself in some personified angelic form speaking to her and she knows it's him by the way she responds. Look at verse 10. The angel of the Lord also said to her, 
I will surely multiply your offspring. Now he's speaking as God speaks. I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be num- numbered for multitude. Only God can make this kind of a promise. It echoes the promise made to Abram. Now, keep in mind, this is not an eternal promise. This is not a, self- a saving promise. It's not that kind of covenant. This is a, a promise of common, nice, common uh, kindness to, common grace to her in her hour of need. And the angel of the Lord said to her, verse 11, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You should call his name Ishmael, which means God has heard, heard her lament, heard her cry, seen her affliction. Verse 11 continues, because the Lord has listened to your affliction, he shall be a wild donkey of a man. So this son of yours will not be a bondservant like you are. He's not going to take it from anybody. His hand will be against everyone. He'll be a wild donkey of a man and everyone's hand against him and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So as bonded as you feel now, Hagar, your son will be the leader of a great number of people, and they won't be anybody's bondservant this way. There's a comfort that comes to her knowing that there's a future for her progeny. God grants this temporal blessing to Hagar and tells her to go back. And look at her response, verse 13. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a god of seeing, or a God who sees. That's the same as saying, you are a God who cares. Of course, God can see everything, but this personal sight placed upon Hagar says he cares about the pain, the anguish, that she was partly the reason for. She's not innocent in this. But this God of grace is also the God of seeing, for he said, truly here, I have seen him who looks after me. If God cares this much for Hagar, who's brought outside, from outside of the covenant into the household of Abram and Sarai, how much more does he care for those who are his in Christ? Despite the mess, God meets her in her pain. The angel of the Lord instructs Hagar to go back to Sarai. Verse 14, Therefore the well was called Beer Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. God brings some immediate comfort to a seemingly lost situation. Whatever situation you find yourself in, dear believer of God, he cares, he sees, he wants to give you healing. Now, that does not mean that some of the tangled webs we weave in this world will be completely rectified or resolved. But it does mean he cares, and he wants us once again to recognize what happens when we trust in our own understanding. That's why our paths are crooked, and it calls us back to him. There are 101 possible applications that could be made. Perhaps it's marriage. The culture says one thing about marriage. We know God says something else by the design he's made for it but we're pressed and we're pushed to think the way the world thinks about how we act towards other people. Um, especially, those young people today have a pressure upon them from the culture's message. They hear the message from God's Word, what they're learning in their families, and yet the world keeps telling them that what they're hearing there is wrong, it's off, it's bigoted, it's biased. 
We have to empathize and appreciate the kinds of pressures that they're under. But I have to say, straightforwardly, to those who are in that category, you young people, self-reliance is miserable, and the world doesn't know what it's talking about. It's completely confused. You're not the confused one. They're the confused ones. The Word is God's revealed will, and He says, trust in me with all your heart. That's what God says to you. Don't lean on your own understanding. Don't lean on the understanding of the world. In all your ways, acknowledge me. Every area, I've got something to say about it. Go to me for that, and I'll make your path straight. Could be the education that you're going to seek, the training you're going to seek, the job you're looking for. The world will tell you one set of values is why you do what you do, but the Word tells you, the Word of God tells you, these are the values that you should have. This is the pursuit you should have could be the way we parent our children. Are we passive, complacent? Are we not engaging? Are we not involving? 101 applications. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will make your path straight. Please bow with me as I lead us in prayer. Lord, Not a one of us, if we are honest, can escape a sense of conviction about our impatience with your plans and purposes as we understand them. You have so graciously revealed yourself to us in your word and confirmed every bit of it through your Son. Over and over, you show yourself wise. You show your ways to be best for us. But we have such a hard time trusting you because so many people are telling us otherwise. And for some insane reason, we think ourselves and our wisdom, our understanding, to be more reliable than your design and your word. O Lord, by the ministry of your Holy Spirit, please gently, be gentle with us, O Lord. Please gently convict us away from relying on ourselves. And fix our faith the more firmly on you and you alone through Christ. Amen. Let us respond by singing as a prayer, number 598. We'll stand and sing verse 1 and verse 2 as the elders and the ushers come to prepare the table. Guide me, O thou great Jehovah, verse 1 and verse 2.